Are you stressed and filled with anxiety like I am? Maybe in a bit of pain from that car accident you had a few years ago? Well, the sponsor of today's episode, Hempville CBD, has us covered. They have the highest quality products created by chemists and doctors. Hempville carries everything from CBD to THC dispensary grade without those despicable dispensary prices. Order your Delta 8, 9, edibles, and vapes along with the THCA flower and get free shipping when you spend $50 or more at HempvilleCBD.com. Check out the link in the description for more details. Welcome to the Filmsteins, the double feature podcast. Join us as we unravel the interwoven experience of the continuous conversation of cinema. Take part in pairing movies with their cursed counterparts, movies that share DNA, or even pairing questionable duos by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash We offer tiers at the $1, $5, and $20 level, or the $5 tier. We grant the ability to request films to further the discussion. So grab some popcorn, sit back, and get ready to join the 100-year conversation. This is the Filmsteins, where movies are more than just entertainment there in experience. And welcome back to another episode of the Film of Science. Thank you for joining us today. I am joined today by my Frenchman, Lucy. Bonjour. <laughs> people. I don't know how to say people in French. <laughs> <laughs> you can join us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for brand new episodes of the Film of Science. Some recent episodes include the totally historically accurate Amadeus, Dream Scenario, the new Nick Cage film, Inception, the sleepiest of films, the Too Cool for School Rebel Moon, shout out to Disney for dodging that bullet, and Disney's own The Creator. That's not Disney. Remember to leave nice reviews, comments, thoughts, and ideas over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash You can go over there and request a film by subscribing to us for $1 or 50 cents. I think you can do a custom. Anything goes. One penny requests. Don't do a penny. Limited <laughs> time i don't think you can actually go that low on patreon but okay or 50 cents just do a dollar <laughs> please at least <laughs> that'd be much appreciated but today we're discussing the 2023 ridley scott film napoleon with our boy joaquin phoenix he is our boy isn't he <laughs> yeah yeah he is i like joaquin i do too i do too are you familiar with ridley scott uh besides alien did he do all of them? No, just the first one, right? He's some way in associated with the others for the most part. But yeah, he he directed that first one. And then I know he did Gladiator, but I've never seen that one. So I know he did he directed that. Mm-hmm. And then um, The Martian. The Martian. You like The Martian. That's I love right. that Martian. I figured out about that movie. Yeah. That's a great movie. Yeah. That's probably Matt Damon's best movie. Didn't we see that at the movie theater when it came out? We sure did. I, I remember so. that. Yeah. I'm pretty familiar with Ridley Scott. I get his name mixed up. I call him Scott Ridley sometimes, so here, excuse me if I do. You're excused. He's no doubt a remarkable director in that he's just constantly making films, and he's an old guy. He's like 80-something. Yes. Oh, my God. So it's just, it's really unbelievable that he's got the will left in him to direct something like Napoleon, nonetheless. And might I add, he doesn't look old. Like, he looks old. Okay. He looks old, but he doesn't look 80 old. It's because he's young at heart, man. He's young at heart. Just that That's the key here, people. Stay young at heart. It's true. Chill out. 
Stay Young at Heart. It's pretty cool. I, I don't love Ridley Scott films. I saw House of Gucci. I saw The Last Duel. They're fine, and we might come to them at some point here on the podcast, so we won't talk too much about them. Going into Napoleon, though, I felt like this was just going to be a dad film. Yeah, I don't think they're quite dad movies. He makes, like, get yourself ready to be a dad dad movies. <laughs> you're not quite in the Ford versus Ferrari. You're not quite there with Air. You're not quite there, but you will like those in the future if you like these. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I see that. Like, you're about to be a father. Okay, movies. I can see this. I can see this. I'm happy to report, though, that I enjoyed Napoleon quite a bit. It's very long, <laughs> but it probably should have been five times longer. It's kind of insane because <laughs> I, I do kind of like the model of storytelling here that we have just, we're just on to the next thing so quick, minus the war scenes. They tend to be kind of the longer sequences. But we're just, we're moving so fast through these 10 years of Napoleon. More, right? Oh, oh, yeah, about 11 or 12, right? Because we start in 1793, and then he dies in 1821. Okay. So we, we kind of see that whole timeline, which is what, 20, 30 years? In a very short span. Because we focus on his military career, but... We still see a little bit before and a little bit after when he's exiled and stuff. So we see a lot here. We do. And I do like the focus of the movie, which seems to me to revolve around mostly Napoleon more as a man than a representative of French or someone who's trying to rally France together to... Yeah, we're sort of humanizing him in that he had other things going on besides being an emperor general. Yeah, and his um, genius behind that. A little bit like uh, Maestro. Kind of gave me those vibes on how they're going to portray Napoleon, this great battle man, so to speak. Yeah, and I even say maybe a tinge of Amadeus, where we, for different reasons, I guess, focus on a little bit of the quirky side of Napoleon. Yes. And I like that, but I don't like... That that's countered with Josephine, Vanessa Kirby. She seems to be pretty weak next to Joaquin Phoenix and Napoleon. I wish we could have got someone much more powerful in their voice and how they kind of command a conversation or situation because he's, you know, at his most vulnerable around her. And she's just, she's really just kind of a non-character. She doesn't really seem to give much more than what she's reading off her piece of paper her script she seemed pretty weak it was kind of confusing i think her motives and her you know true feelings on napoleon it didn't really seem like she was all that present for herself let alone napoleon even at the height of their relationship so i was just kind of bummed out by the lack of passion that could have happened between the two because it all kind of got left on napoleon and joaquin's shoulders which he's happy to hold but it would have been I don't know if there was a situation that could have called for it but it would have been really cool to see a Josephine really make Napoleon feel small in in moments behind closed doors you know what I mean that we I don't think we got here at all 
Yeah, I can kind of see that. Um, it seemed like really he was more into this relationship than she was. And the way they portrayed the divorce, we know that's not true. We know she was just as into the relationship as he was too because of how sad the, and tragic the divorce was and just how sad that they couldn't have kids. So yeah, because at first I thought she just didn't give a shit yeah. about him, that it was just for the, I don't know, the royalty, the money, I don't know. But yeah, now that I think about it, or now that you say that, that makes sense. We needed to see something more from her because the little bit we got was enough to know that, okay, yeah, she, she was in love with him too she was passionate too i guess it especially stands out too probably because she's the she's on the screen the second most of any character and we get the most one-on-one time with napoleon and you know another character mostly being her yeah and so it, and so it really stands out in that way and there because there's his body language and weird little you know mannerisms and and whatnot are heightened and she doesn't seem to match that in any way whatsoever like maybe you could see a real motherly character come out of her a really powerful mother type character mothering napoleon which she somewhat does but it it falls a little flat i think so it's just with all that said though i will say this relationship's much more believable than than jack and ally in a star is born <laughs> I mean shit he threw her crap out that was awesome that was awesome and like you know this is the 18 early 1800s and he's throwing her shit out the door and it rains and really yeah in really beautiful boxes and I mean you know shit back then was mostly heirlooms and expensive and classy and stuff and that shit's just right out there in the rain and it's hilarious. It's even funnier than if that were to happen in a movie taking place modern time. Because a lot of those things, if they get damaged, they're fucked. Yeah, I don't know why moves like that in a, re- in a relationship feel much more savage when they're between royal, noble people. Like, you know, kind of down Abbey, Victorian era oriented people and if it feels really savage small moves like that you know today you gotta pull a gun on someone to be savage. that savage yeah. <laughs> but back then yeah well i really enjoyed this movie too i really liked all the battle scenes they were pretty awesome and the costumes were great i mean the costumes were the costumes were great they went above and beyond typical war costumes i think i haven't seen a lot of films especially in this time you know most of them are pretty world war ii era from the american side of things so i can't really compare you know the the costumes and set designs but i i feel like in this film they really went above and beyond especially with napoleon's um general costumes yeah absolutely i think above all else that's probably the major spectacle of the movie Mm -hmm. is just the dress of people and the sets and how you know just how everything looks it's really something yeah and his his hat his hat's his hat's awesome his hat's awesome and just the personality he gives it it's really cool. cool yeah it's so cool i love that it's a nice little touch 
I do agree, though, that the pacing was a bit rough. It was a bit too fast, especially in what I think to be really pivotal moments in his life that we just kind of push past them really quickly. I mean, in the future of France. Yeah. It's it's no doubt we we sprint through these 20, 30 years. They don't give you enough time to become familiar with who's on what side of things during the war. Yeah, and I guess the motives of the wars themselves starts to become fuzzy and all that too. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's one reason I appreciate the focus of the man himself and less of his patriotism and his need to prove something about France. I'm not I'm not exactly sure what Napoleon's agenda is with battling these different armies from Eastern Europe. But like you said, I think the film does a fun job humanizing Napoleon to the point of a caricature, maybe, but still maintains a very specific angle. Yeah. Who do you think is the target audience for this type of movie? I know a lot of people out there were a little mad about the historical accuracies of this film, or inaccuracies, I guess, and... For some reason, that seems to bug people so much. I was thinking the same thing. We heard that about Amadeus. Yes. And I don't know what people expect. I guess, one, I don't know what people expect from a movie that needs to live between an hour and a half to three hours, really. Three and a half hours max, you know, kind of thing with director's cuts or whatever. I don't know what people expect from something like that. This isn't a Ken Burns documentary series. Right, so our target audience here is not the historians. Yes, or I would even say your, you know, your old guys who are history buffs. I wouldn't even say they are the hyper-specific demographic. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of funny because I can't imagine this being very popular with the kids. Might bore them a little bit. Yes, I think so. And like you said, it's not a proper dad film. I think partially because of those inaccuracies. Not that that doesn't happen in every single movie about any kind of historical topic ever. There's always historical inaccuracies, which I want to talk about here in a second about the obsession about that because that's... I would imagine the target audience is then just any adult. Yeah, I struggled a little bit too with who the target audience was here. Was it Joaquin Phoenix's fans? I think that's a very small percentage. This whole movie was not made just for Joaquin Phoenix fans, but I do think that that is making some people that would normally wouldn't watch this kind of movie watch it. And then maybe the people that like period pieces would be for this type of film because I don't think a lot of people like historical content like this. I don't know. We don't. We don't get a lot of these kinds of films, at least anymore. But I know Gladiator was massive. That was a massive hit. People, one of the most loved films of the 90s. And it's cut of a similar cloth. It's a Ridley Scott film for one. But it's a Gladiator film. It takes place amongst gladiators. I don't actually know what it's about. But I just know it's like takes place about 2,000 years ago. Yeah, but does it have a historical figure like Napoleon? Yeah. It does? Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I don't know my gladiator it's, history. I think, I, I mean, 
please write in and tell us we're wrong. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's rooted in reality, just like this is. It's fiction because unless you're a textbook or a storied documentarian like Ken Burns, it's all fiction. No matter how you spin it, no matter what you say about it, a two and a half hour piece of a thing is going to have a very subjective perspective, no matter how objective you try to try to get at it. And I guess that can also be true with history, textbooks, and whatnot too, right? What's the old adage that the winners write the history books? Yeah. So. That's true. There's some truth in that, of course, but it's a little overstated at the same time. I think war oriented movies tend to be pretty popular too in general that's just something i think you and i have somehow avoided quite a bit of like saving private ryan you know big ass movie platoon apocalypse now right yeah those are all massive massive movies i've never seen any of them please don't come kill me (laughs) so there i think there's that slant too i'm not sure what that demographic looks like those that just might be humans liking violence you know oh yeah so there might be a teenage slant here too with the gore really there's there's some pretty gnarly kills throughout this film yeah the uh, battle scenes were definitely very chaotic and super gory and i like that again not too familiar with war movies but they never quite get super gory Mm -hmm. you know yeah there's dead bodies laying everywhere but you don't see the horse explode. Yeah. Or, you know, there's water and blood everywhere. Or, you know, the guillotine chopping someone's head off and someone lifting it up. And sometimes you get the implication that that's happening, but you don't you don't see anything a lot of times. But here we saw all of it. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, violence in this movie. Yeah, I don't know how common that is in war films, the graphic nature. You'd think historians and the people who bitch and complain about the inaccuracies of films like this would be the first people to defend the embellishment and quick-natured of storytelling and how things can lose and gain different meanings throughout time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because the first historians of the world were our storytellers you know, 20,000 years ago. That's true. That's very, that's how you told what happened through a story. And things became legend and myth and even divine in some situations. So you think historians, no matter how professional and try, you know, and how much integrity they have, they would understand that this is not a textbook. For one, they're watching it on the screen. You read a textbook. I don't know if everybody's aware if every historian's aware of that fact, that's a fact for you right there. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, you're you're just absolutely right. I'm sure one of the biggest source materials we have from people like Napoleon are his love letters to Josephine. And how much do you embellish when you're in love? Or when you're far away from your partner, you know? If you're far away from them, you miss them. You absolutely fucking miss them. And you appreciate them. Like, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. That kind of shit. (laughs) Yeah. Or even, maybe even more primitive. Well, maybe not more primitive, but the other way. 
more civilized, when you put pen to paper, you try, maybe it's just me, but you try to actually say something. Yes. And that's, that's, that's kind of where my point was going. Because it's a text message. Damn. (laughs) Because when we see Napoleon and Josephine interact, again, it might just be her. It might be their dynamic, but they don't have that passion that Napoleon is putting in his letters. And there could be several reasons for that. We don't know. Maybe he didn't mean half the shit he wrote, but he was just so lustful or, you know, really cold in Russia. Or maybe he was more passionate on the inside. And then the the letters kind of give a window into that. Yeah, maybe that's how he knew to best communicate through his writings. I think that's a very common thing within people. And so historians out there, is that the truth? Is that Napoleon, I mean, is that who we're supposed to be seeing on screen, this sappy, romantic guy? Or is that just how he knew to express himself, but completely different around people? I mean, I think Ridley Scott tried to do something different here with that. Yeah, I I get stuck on people getting so mad over the historical inaccuracies here, because that's not the point of the movie. Why didn't they, um, why didn't Ridley Scott here find a French person to... I saw that. <laughs> you know, do Napoleon. I saw someone bitching about that. Yeah. I, I saw several people bitching that Napoleon spoke English. Mm-hmm. I but... saw a bunch of French outlets apparently were pretty upset about the lack of Frenchiness. It's like, all right, then make your own movie. Damn. Got him. If you're a Napoleon lover... You're not flattered that Ridley Scott was obviously very attracted to the, you know, the bedroom side of Napoleon, the emotional, quirky weirdness out of him. You know, that's that's cool. That's a really fun angle that they took with him. Yes. And I'm glad Joaquin was, you know, up to bat for that because he's he's weird, obviously, and he can he can really control that in a really interesting way. Yeah. Also. The film industry is kind of an American industry. Uh, Americans have the biggest movies and Americans bring in the money for film. So I'm sorry he wanted to make this movie in English. And I'm sorry Joaquin Phoenix didn't want to portray a fake French accent. I don't know. I don't know. Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter because it's fiction. Ridley Scott also does a really good job not taking a stand on anything. Right. He's really just embracing the strangeness of Napoleon. He's embracing the goofiness. Yeah. And I really like that because at first you don't know how to react to that. Like, what? This is Napoleon. And, you know, I'm not a history buff. I don't go read history books. My history education stops at, you know, college level. You know, world history class. That That's it that I had to take to get my degree. That's it. So I don't know a lot about Napoleon, but again, not the point. The point is to give him a personality that we don't often see in these history books. Yeah, well, I mean, well said. And, may, and that makes me think of all of our, you know, our founding fathers in America. I don't think I've seen anything with them having personality. They're right. all these super stoic. Yeah, the only one we get a slight, slight personality thing with is Abraham Lincoln. But that that's it. Yeah, I don't even 
I don't even know about that. Maybe an Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter. <laughs> <laughs> but he's still also kind of your stoic, just... Yeah, he's a smart man, abolished slavery, wore a top hat, very wise. He's on the penny, you know? Yeah, he sure is. He sure is. Yeah, and I love how Joaquin kind of just embraced it here, especially with the little scenes like when he falls asleep because I don't know, he's so bored, he's so tired. I don't know, it's so kind of quirky. Like, what the fuck is Napoleon right now? He's sleeping while we're we're discussing these urgent matters? Or when uh, Josephine calls him fat and he's like, what, I like to eat? I I do. <laughs> and probably one of my favorite parts is when, you know, they're they're they they're trying to make a baby. He's trying to get an heir. And um there's that really playful scene where they're at the breakfast table and he crawls under the table and grabs her and you know, brings her in there with him. Can you imagine George Washington doing that? I cannot imagine <laughs> George Washington doing that. I can't imagine any president being portrayed like that maybe trump i don't know he's a ladies man i guess but i don't know if he's exactly playful i think they'd take another route with him but yeah he's more of a bill cosby type bill cosby (laughs) shit (laughs) all right you said it not me let's just get that out there (laughs) it's a joke (laughs) no he the only one he's drugging is himself and it's with viagra Damn. Got him. Got him. <laughs> Again, you said that, not me. <laughs> but it's just it's just so funny. These these parts are so funny that it's hard to make this film anything other than it's giving Napoleon a personality and a love story between him and Josephine. Yeah, exactly. Which is why I have an issue with Josephine's character. Yes. I can't get away from that. That's why this movie can't really be elevated to new heights in my mind because Josephine's actor was, or direction, it's hard to say. I'm not too sure, but it just, it fell very flat and it felt, it felt like she wasn't able to challenge Joaquin when she was supposed to. Because there are moments when, like when Napoleon, like crawled in her lap like a kid. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, these are. You have the platform, you know, you have the, the body language that allows for you to make that one-two punch, you know? Yeah. And we, she really drops the ball on that. But I love the focus. I can't get away from that because it's, it's such a cool focus. It's because it's kind of similar to the creator where you have this crazy background, right? And the difference between the creator and Napoleon, of course, is Napoleon's facilitating this crazy-ass background. Well, I guess it might happen regardless. They might march on France, whether he's there or not. So the background's, I guess, there. But he's he's a really important player to all of that. But he still demands time to, you know, deal with his domestic affairs, even at the cost of looking like he's deserting, you know? Yeah. It's cool. It is cool. Or that scene when um they get divorced and she's... At the summer house, I don't know. I don't know how divorce <laughs> worked back then, but just something there about how even though they were divorced, she's still part of his world. She's still there. He's still going to take care of her. And then he has a kid 
with the Marie girl. And Napoleon brings the kid to Josephine. So they have this connection. Yeah, I was, at that point in the movie, I was surprised. Because I was like, so they do like, or so she does like Napoleon? Because I know Napoleon's all about her still. Mm-hmm. But her, everything she gives me is kind of contradictory and conflicting with what continues to happen scene to scene. I'm just like, okay. Like, it almost feels like, at times it almost feels like she's going to backstab him. Like, literally maybe kill him or something. <laughs> you know, and then there's times where I'm like, Okay, she's definitely a little bummed out by the divorce and stuff. But she, I mean, that's what I'm saying, man. I just can't get away from, but she just can't deliver on on that level. I'm not sure exactly what angle that should be. I think it should be the motherly thing because that can help introduce the authority she has over him at home and stuff. Or really just in his mind, I should say. And she's what? And she says that, too. I don't remember exactly how she phrases it, but she says something along the lines of, you're nothing without me. Yeah, I think that's exactly what she says. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And she makes him repeat it. Yeah. She or whatever. <laughs> she makes him repeat it. Which that's is good. hilarious. And we just we just need a, more of that. I don't know what was happening with that character, with that performance. Mm, yeah. One other thing I like that kind of helps tie in the sensitive side of Napoleon is the score when we're especially at his manor or whatever and stuff. And it, it feels like the score is made up of instruments you might find at the child aisles of like Walmart. Like you're you have these children instruments that make these strange sounds. You know what I'm saying? Did you yes. hear that? Yes. The score is definitely very playful. Yeah. Along with his personality. Yeah, I felt that too. It wasn't your typical classical um, highbrow music. Like you would kind of think goes with this type of man, really. Yeah. But no, it was very it was very playful. It felt like all the instruments were Fisher-Price toys. <laughs> and I liked it a lot because it only runs home that this isn't your textbook's Napoleon. This is your... Pride and Prejudice. This is your Jane Austen Napoleon. Yes. Yeah, I was uh, listening to an interview with the director, and he said that he really wasn't trying to teach anybody anything with this movie, that he was just having a good time, and that if you don't, and that, and this is directly quoted, if you don't laugh, you have no sense of humor whatsoever. <laughs> That's what he That's said. That's what he said. Well, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I probably laughed 20 times or, you know, some kind of some form of laughter. I thought this movie was like situationally funny constantly. Yes. There were no jokes or not very many. At least I can't remember any, but it was definitely kind of oriented on that cringe, like like people not knowing how to deal with Napoleon's weirdness at times. And it's funny. Yeah. It's not it belly aching funny i guess nothing hardly anything is these days but i like that it's funny that he says that he seems to be a real you know if you don't like it then fucking put something else on you know yeah like real i don't know new york or something new york i don't know you know what i mean yeah like if you don't like it okay all right cool, cool. story yeah. <laughs> but no this this movie is pretty funny there's several funny moments 
again, like when he's sleeping or even when his hat gets shot and there's a bullet hole going through his hat. And by this time in the film, you know how obsessed he is already with his uniform and his hat. He makes such a spectacle of it that now it's got a hole in his reaction when he sees it get shot. And it, it's funny. It's funny moments like this. Even though they're in a war, I mean, the whole chaoticness of the last battle at Waterloo when they're in formation and the opposing side is just tightly sitting there and no one can do anything about him. I mean, even those parts are kind of funny seeing this happen, seeing this being fought this way. And okay, is it historically accurate? I don't know. I don't think so. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because I, I saw someone talk about um, trench warfare and how it wasn't a thing back then. And from what I know, I think that's true. It wasn't really popularized, I guess, however you would say that, until World War One. But it doesn't matter. It's still hilarious seeing them fight the way they did. And just seeing how nervous he was getting the whole time. Because dude lost, got exiled, came back, took over again. Now he's losing again. And he gets exiled again. I mean, how is that not so much fun? It's like they keep putting him in timeout. Yes. You know, when some serious shit's happening, but they're not, they're really not treating it like a serious situation. And that's in itself, I assume the exiling is probably mostly true because... It happened twice in the film, so I think Ridley Scott's obviously kind of poking fun out of it, and I think it's rightfully done because this man, at the end of his terms, he basically sacrificed close to three million French soldiers, right? <laughs> yes. Like, but he's put in time out, you know? It's like, that's there's some funny thing happening there, you know? For sure. And apparently the... When they were in that one battle where the, the, the guys, I think the Austrian guys were on ice mm-hmm. and they started shooting cannonballs through the ice and stuff. And apparently that wasn't a real thing that happened either. That was made up through myth and legend of the battles that Napoleon, you know, went through and stuff. That's awesome. And I, as a historian, I knowing that that comes from myth and legend and, you know, just the love and pedestal people put napoleon on doesn't it just make you grin ear to ear to see that depicted as if it was real like now these stories kind of have a visual to them in a really crazy way i don't want to say that that's just isn't that cool that's fucking awesome like it doesn't matter if it's historically accurate yes. like that's i don't know why that's important to anyone when they're watching a, a ridley scott movie all right. If Ridley Scott was going around being like, this is the most historically accurate Napoleon depiction ever made, he opens the door for the criticism. Yes. It's just like how we've talked about before. Certain directors, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but certain directors will say stuff during interviews that really was a non-issue before, but now they've all of a sudden opened that door to see the whole thing in a new light. And sometimes it doesn't work in their favor. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it really makes the film not be as successful, you know, critically. I can't, I think we've talked about one recently here in the last few weeks, but I can't remember. Apparently Scott said something kind of funny to the 
inaccuracies. He says, Napoleon dies then. Ten years later, someone writes a book. Then someone takes that book and writes another book. And so on and so on for 400 years. <laughs> and there's a lot of imagination in history books. When I have issues with historians, I ask, excuse me, mate, were you there? No. Well, shut the fuck up then. Yes. That's what he said. I like that. I like that. It's such a that's such a mom thing to say, you know. Were you there? No. No. Then shut the fuck up. <laughs> but it's it's true when you present an issue that's a non-issue. Yes. Yes. He's just giving you something visually stunning here. I mean, the cinematography in this film is absolutely wonderful. But he's giving you something different. I mean, isn't everyone bitching all the time about how they want something different too? But what, not not different enough to personalize Napoleon Bonaparte? We don't want to see the capital R and lowercase r romantic of Napoleon. We don't want to see the, 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 the legends that he initiated. We don't want to see him get his freak on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Apparently. Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. Have you ever seen George Washington fucking in a movie? I I am sorry to say I have not. You ever seen Abraham Lincoln fucking? <laughs> I don't think I have either. Why is that funny? I don't know. <laughs> it's funnier than George Washington. Does he keep the hat on? <laughs> I, you know, in my mind's eye, he had he the does, hat on. right? Yep. <laughs> Me too. No, Napoleon is a fine movie. Ridley Scott did a fine job. He I agree. A, he did a good job. I agree. I almost wish this would have been a miniseries or like a limited series and focused a bit more on either the personality thing or Josephine and his relationship. Yeah, totally. We could have embellished everything just a little bit more. Maybe he could have included a few more, you know, legends to pop out of Napoleon that weren't true. Yeah. Just to make sure you you knew that it wasn't that that a cameraman wasn't actually there during <laughs> Napoleon's battles. What? Yeah, that wasn't Napoleon on screen. <gasps> what? That was Joaquin Phoenix dressed up as a Frenchman. No. He also didn't speak English. <gasps> they spoke French. They they spoke 1700 French. Damn. Early 1800. Because if this movie was in French, there would have been all this criticisms about well, French didn't sound quite like that at the end of the 1700s. Okay. And, and if it did, if it did, I guess, because we know what that sounds like, then would he be called pretentious? Yeah, for real. He would. So you can't really please. Well, he pleased me with this movie. I'm pleased. I guess to just run at home, excuse Ridley Scott for trying to make warfare, you know, fun. It's not fun, I guess, obviously, in real life, but it's also not very fun usually watching it. It's very kind of kids bashing toys together, especially of the time where the only interesting part is the strategy part, and that's going to be a hyper-specific conversation that's going to lose people. Right. And it's fun to see people on Game of Thrones moving you know, their pieces around on the big map and everything, but that's... It's hard to earn that kind of thing when you don't have eight seasons kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, or when you're battling something that's not human, then yeah. it becomes interesting. Yeah. And we move so fast in this movie, there's just no time 
for details like that because that would also start to help open the door of the historical accuracy of it all because we we do a good job avoiding the kind of political bedroom talk we don't see a lot of the political drama yeah we just see a fast scribble of a name you know alexander the great or whatever that's really it i mean he's also counting on you a little bit to know your basics about this revolution yeah he i wouldn't say he throws you in the deep end but he almost does where he just sets you in france and you know and then you just got to realize that there's they don't have the best relationship with the british and austria and and russia and prussia i should say i guess yeah blow up a few pyramids here oh yeah that's a good one you know uh they didn't like that one either <laughs> did you see that no so i didn't napoleon didn't shoot cannons at the pyramids of giza oh, no apparently that was ridley scott's creative choice to indicate that the french took egypt you know quickly easily swiftly you mean he made a creative choice yep. in this movie yep <sighs> the audacity but that was an awesome little yes. small little bit him launching the visual of him launching cannons at the pyramids awesome after awesome. he had just been inspecting a mummified body yeah like that i mean come on i just don't understand how you cannot appreciate this at least i'm sure there's a documentary out there about napoleon go watch that if you want to have some sort of historically accurate tellings or go read a book which i'm sure you have you're a historian i guess yeah you probably know the story of napoleon you really want to see it on the screen <laughs> again you know what you've already seen in your mind's eye a hundred times? That's true. That's true. I want to see Napoleon remade, but through a Japanese lens where all the characters are Japanese. Yes. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. And they can speak whatever language, Japanese, if they want. Or or they should, it should just be dubbed. There should be no dialogue, like no embedded dialogue. It should all be just dubbed with French. And the, the voices are clearly not the Japanese guys doing the French voices, which is get a, an abomination of a thing going on. I'd watch that. And then Godzilla can show up halfway yes. through. Like, what? They're going to lose their mind. Godzilla wasn't in the French Revolution. And then Godzilla has a fake Jewish nose. That'll do it. That'll do it. In the interview I was watching, he also talks about how this movie was filmed in 61 days which is apparently really short for this type of movie not really short but on the shorter side i guess i don't know the interviewer was really surprised that it took that little and he started talking about how he pretty much films everything with four to eight cameras at once which was insane to me i guess i kind of figured that everybody used multiple cameras, but then I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still learning. But that's just crazy. That apparently here he used up to eleven cameras, which is nuts. That just seems like a lot of work for the editing guys. Yeah, editing this movie was probably pretty nuts. But if you can get a lot of really great takes, 
which which something tells me they do with someone like Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix and just the the total necessity of you know getting you know shots right on the first time in this kind of production because there's just a lot moving on you cannot have these people reshooting and reshooting and reshooting you know there's a lot happening yeah which i think that helped with the lower amount of days mm-hmm. it yeah. took filming because they didn't have to reshoot i guess so that was cool that was just interesting that probably also implies a like a complete vision going into it ridley scott did not leave this production with 80 hours of footage he had all of this planned out and had a proper vision unlike i think a lot of directors do who abuse you know the the digital camera and and people's time mm-hmm. now for sure i think he definitely had his vision and it seems like he got what he you know what he was trying to say yeah totally and he's happy to defend it too which i love yeah i do too i do too he's pretty outspoken i didn't or he seems like he's pretty outspoken. I didn't realize he was that kind of character, but you know, he's been making films for what fifty years almost. So he's yeah. In the interview I watched, um, I guess the people I don't, I I'd have to pull it up to see who it was, but they had previously interviewed Christopher Nolan when Oppenheimer came out, and they asked Christopher Nolan who was one person that he admired would even kind of consider an Einstein of directors. And he said, Ridley Scott. Hmm. So they brought that up to Ridley Scott here in this interview for Napoleon. And they asked him, like, what do you you think about that? That Christopher Nolan said that about you? Like, how does that make you feel sort of thing? And he was like, oh, well, it brings tears to my eyes. And they were like, really? He was like, (laughs) no, I don't, I don't. He didn't say I don't care, but he kind of made it sound like he didn't care. He was like, no, I mean, sorry, Chris, but okay. <laughs> it was so funny. It was hilarious. This man is very outspoken and funny. He should make more funny movies like this. Sort of situational humor, like you said. That would be funny. Yeah, that's hilarious. I I've, I get the feeling from people like you know Martin Scorsese and I guess Ridley Scott here that there's this weird, funny rejection within them for modern celebrityism and how we look at them, how we look at each other and stuff. And I love that there's just like, they're grossed out by the <laughs> fandom, the fanboyism around them and others and stuff. And yeah. even even a great director like Christopher Nolan, you know, who has very similar kind of control chops. You know, there's something very similar between the two, but in that way... And who knows if Christopher Nolan's, you know, being funny, funny, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's probably just, he's probably just a funny guy too. He may have just been, yeah, cutting up that day. <laughs> yeah, just kind of stoking a funny fire with an interviewee because he knows he's going to use it for some nonsense down the pipeline. And but there seems to be a funny kind of outspokenness with these these old guys and a lot of modern cinema and stuff. I, I like that. That's yeah, cool. I like that too. It's like. When you're a certain age, you're allowed to say whatever the fuck is on your mind. Yeah, you're allowed to fart in public whenever you want. Yeah, and you know what? You're dying, so... I like the idea of directors and filmmakers fucking with journalists today. Because hardly any of them know what they're doing. And so that they don't catch on to the joke or whatever. 
they you know they they spread it and then they look even more stupid than they already do yeah like when he said um if you didn't laugh you have no sense of humor this was a different interviewer and um she just kind of said oh uh-huh I was like, how did you not find that hilarious? It's like she's not even paying attention. Yeah. Like, how do you not, like, I don't know. That would be so funny to, she, she's probably got an earpiece in. Her producer's like, ask him this now or something. She's not even probably paying attention and stuff. So it's just like, she's not even present. That sucks. One of the final things in the film that I like, when Josephine dies, we get this shift in Napoleon that it's really melodramatic. It's like hard to call it melodramatic because it's a war situation, but it, it is sort of this melodramatic thing that makes his love for his country kind of exponentiate all of a sudden. Like he still has more to prove for Josephine or something, even though she's dead. And so he just goes, he puts like all of his chips in, you know, go all out. He goes all out and he, and he loses it all. I like that. I like the, like the almost desperate patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that they, tie it all really nicely into a bow with his last words yeah france the war the army whatever and josephine Mm -hmm. and again those are supposedly his last three words were those really his last three words no again it's it's this whole you know funny angle the josephine i mean it's 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 all in a nice bow I totally agree. I like that. Really, Scott knew what he had here. He delivered. And if people don't get it, they can... Fuck off, I guess. He they said can fuck it. off. <laughs> fuck those guys. His words, not mine. Those are my words, too. <laughs> I'm, I'm co-signing Ridley Scott. You're co-signing. I think it's just one final note. I like the resistance to want to put this guy on a pedestal because we, we see him fall over at the very end. There's nothing monumental about his death. There's nothing glorious about it. We don't even get a frontal view of him falling over. We get we're a behind the head shot, close up of him just tipping over. Yep, it's well fun. Put. It's cool, and it's you know fitting. It puts a pin in the melodrama we have there at the very end too, and it's great. It's a good, very good movie. All right, man. Well, thank you for that conversation and watching this movie with me here. You're welcome. I was excited for this movie. I don't know if I said that in the beginning, but. This was an anticipated one once I knew that this was going to be a thing. Well, how about that? I was, I was, I was cautious about this movie. I wasn't, I was very like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. This might be boring as fuck and it's long, but it turned out to be all right. We're good here. Do you have a budget guess for me here today? Yeah. My budget guess is a hundred million, which I'm not confident in. Yeah, I wouldn't be either. <laughs> <laughs> you want to second guess that? I guess now I have to. Um, one twenty-five. There's a lot of moving parts here, and Ridley Scott looks like he makes expensive movies. But I don't know. I don't know because we haven't looked into one of his movies. It hasn't been properly analyzed. So I don't know. Maybe he can. He knows how to spend the money. And in Dunkirk, those costumes were apparently cheap. So who fucking knows anymore? Yeah, I wonder if they got them from the same Mexican village. <laughs> they have a whole village making these costumes, probably. Keep them employed. 
It says here that it was about $200 million. Holy poops. <laughs> That's a lot of money. That's an expensive movie. That is an expensive-ass movie. and That's what happens when you outfit you know, real locations. It probably would have been cheaper to CG and uh, soundstage a lot of this, <laughs> but he went all out. Good, 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 good. And I believe it's still at theaters, but it went on to make $214 million, okay. which is... Not great. Probably... For the budget. They're they're probably still in the red with that one. That's uh that's gonna be a lot to make up. They probably need the I don't yeah, I don't know how that's gonna really turn out. I know this was a like a marquee title for Apple T V or Apple Plus or whatever it's called, so and they tend to put out a few movies a year and they all tend to be pretty good. So okay. here's another one to add to that for sure. It says over on Letterbox for some general consensus out there. With about 300,000 people writing in a 3.0. Wow, that's what I gave it. I gave it a 3.0, but I also played with a 3.5, so I'm sitting there. Okay. Yeah, I think a 3.0 is pretty fair, especially based off the reception. I I could have seen it dip below, I guess. Yeah, me it, too. I didn't really see a lot of positivity as far as like editorial pieces and whatnot. It's a comedy, you know, chill. If you didn't like it, you didn't like it, but it's... You don't have a sense of humor. All right, it's yeah, fine. maybe. <laughs> but you're... I feel like it's being docked for the wrong reason. Yes, you know, agreed. The length and the, sp- the pace, okay, those, those get some... They are a little messy, so... But yeah, I, I, I'd probably lean somewhere between a 2.5 and a 3. I think I'm leaning towards the 2.5 just because of the lack of solid performance we got out of... Josephine. Josephine's actor, yeah. Mm. It was just a little too it was kind of bad. Like it I hate to say it, it was just it was just kind of bad. Cause she did bad. Because she did bad. <laughs> I just I can't I don't know how else to really say it. I I don't I don't know. But yeah, thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Film of Steins. Remember you can catch us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for brand new episodes over on patreon.com slash filmestein, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all the goods. Thank you guys for supporting this podcast. We very much appreciate it. Go to go over and write on our Patreon ASAP. Recommend a movie. Be much appreciated. Please recommend a movie. Please recommend your favorite movie. All right. Pokemon the movie, the first one. All right. Boom. Where Ash dies. That's what they should have killed him. <laughs> right, right out of the gate, you know what I'm saying? But until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap for today's episode of The Film of Stein. Thanks for tuning in and joining us on our cinematic journey. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and gained some new insights and perspectives on the world of movies. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform, especially Patreon at patreon.com slash and follow us on social media for more film-related content. We love hearing from our listeners, so if you have any feedback, suggestions, movie recommendations, or book recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us. Until next time, keep watching and keep loving the magic of movies. This is The Film of Steins, signing off. Oh! <clears throat>